everyone. My name is Reese Karolinski, and this is Young History, episode 159 on Poland. The capital of this country is Warsaw, and I normally open with a short story about how the country got its name, but I'll explain that in the very early parts of this episode. I feel like it connects very much to the history, as most of them do, but Poland's very near and dear to my heart, so we'll do that in a sec. But I am going to still give you the quick facts. Poland has a vibrant folk tradition, with colorful regional costumes, folk music, dance, and festivals. Each region of Poland has its own distinct folk culture that has been influenced by many other nations because the East has a lot of mix with Russian Slavic culture, the South has a lot of Austrian and Hungarian influence, and the West has very Germanic influence on top of the deep Polish culture that was already there. And bouncing into other cultural things, the Polish cuisine is hearty and flavorful. The dishes often feature meat, potatoes, cabbage, and grains, and some of those iconic dishes include the pierogi, which are so good. They're a handmade potato or cheese-filled dumpling, and sometimes it's potato with cheese, and I've, I've had these my whole life. They're fantastic, and the thing we usually serve them alongside is kebasa, which is a long sausage of pork and different spices from the region, and it's like very long compared to your, your Italian sausage or like your bratwurst. It's very, very long and curvy. You cook the whole thing up, you serve it alongside pierogies. It's just, it's so good. This is the stuff that I was raised on. But on top of that, there's also zulek, which is a sour rye soup. There's bigos, which is a, kind of like a hunter's stew. And then they do take a lot of pride in their desserts as well, despite being a nation that's not super famous for them. That's why they have Pakski, which is filled donuts, and of course, Sernik, which is their cheesecake. So Poland has a lot of these, and that's that's not even it with this tradition. But nonetheless, Poland does have a very rich musical heritage. With traditional folk music, as well as classical composers such as Frederick Chopin, Ignacy Jan Pedrowisk, and Krzysztof Penderecki, Traditional Polish music often features instruments like the accordion, fiddle, and clarinet. Polish folk dances, such as the Polonaise, the Mazurka, and the Oblek, are still performed at weddings and festivals to connect Polish tradition with the rest of the world. And Poland also has a really long tradition of literature and arts, which are celebrated mainly by its authors, poets, and artists that have contributed hugely to the region and to Polish culture overall. Notable Polish literary figures include Henry, Sajankiewicz, and Nobel Laureate, who was in literature. There's also Stanislaw Liam, who is a renowned science fiction writer. And on top of this, Polish art has produced influential figures such as Jan Metecheko, who is a master of historical paintings. So there's a bunch of cultural things here. There's so many things to explain with this country, and there's also a lot of history. So I'm going to get into it, and I just want to say this one's very near and dear to my heart. Um... My last name is Garlinski, which of course you can tell is from this old region of the world. My family's very Polish, especially on my farther back on my father's side. My grandma could not be more Polish, and that's why I've been raised with pierogies and kielbasa. And yeah, so this is this is a big country for me. Um, got some uncles listening, got a lot of friends listening, got a lot of family listening, and it matters to my heart. So I'm going to do my damnedest to make sure this is the best I've ever done and give you guys a little bit of taste of Polish culture and Polish history. So I hope my skis are watching and they're very excited. So let's do this thing. But with all that being said, my name is Rhys Garlenski, emphasis on the ski for today, and this is Young History. And on top of all that, this is Poland. I hope you guys enjoy.
Our origins begin in an era unknown. The first people here are almost entirely unconfirmed, but it is believed that descendants of the Indo-Europeans from Eurasian steppes migrated west to form the early populations of Eastern Europe. The first tracks of civilization can be seen with the Lusitanian culture, which was a Bronze Age civilization. The Lusitanians were artisans that left behind many handmade goods. The style of their wood forts are replicated today. The Lusitanians were most prominent around 700 BC. Over the next 100 years, the Pomeranian culture would emerge around 600 BC. They are most known for their urns and pottery that had faces shaped onto the art, which is rare because normally pottery is just pots and vases and different things with different designs of them. But the Pomeranian culture very specifically shaped a neck, they shaped a nose, ears, eye holes or eye shapes, eyebrows, and a face onto much of the pottery they had, and makes it very distinct to pretty much the rest of the world. And the Pomeranians actually occupied the northwestern region of modern Poland that eventually became a Juran territory before being transferred back to Polish control. Then there was Przeworsk culture, which was another pottery-based group that lasted in the region until 400 CE, and it popped up around the same time the Pomeranians did. The civilizations of this culture were replaced by Slavic tribes that moved into the area. Slavic tribes, specifically the Western Slavs, moved across the region once Rome fell because it was easier for them to migrate. This movement of Western Slavs across Central Europe is known as the Great Migration Period. But there is a folk tale that goes with this. There is a legend told in Central and Eastern Europe to explain the origins of the Slavic people. The tale states that three brothers, Czech, Rus, and Lake, were separated on a hunting trip in Central Europe. Czech went into the lands of Czechia and Slovakia today to form the Czech peoples. Rus went far to the northeast to found Russia. And Lech split the two when he followed a white eagle towards the sunset in Central Eastern Europe. Once this white eagle landed, Lech believed that the beauty of this creature was an omen of good fortune. Lech decided that this would be the land of the Polish and Poland. To this very day, the white eagle is still a strong symbol of Poland. And of the Slavic tribes mentioned, one of them was the Polans. They give it as Poland without the D. The Polans were a smaller group of Eastern Slavs that moved into the area. They incorporated other tribes into their fold in order to have more members and expand. This is where the dual theory of Poland's name comes from. Poland is widely accepted as the name for the land of the Polans. However, an earlier theory suggests that the name comes from the word Polak, which means son of Lech, whose descendants are the Poles. And Polak has gotten into a weird space today where some people use it, some people are offended by it. I'm not going to lie, if you actually went to Poland and used the term, as long as you weren't using it with someone you're having a direct argument with, I don't think there's a single Pole in the world that would be mad at you because these are very hardy people that have dealt with a lot worse than an old word being used to describe them. But nonetheless, this name suggests that Polak means son of lake, and that was eventually Poland. Now, for centuries, these people groups would spread their influence but not have an actual Polish state to live in. But that did change with Miezko I. He ruled from 960 to 992 CE thus establishing the power of the Piast dynasty. During this time, he created the first Polish state, the Duchy of Poland. He accepted Christianity of the faith of the new nation, and it has stuck forever since. He led major conquests across parts of Eastern Europe and expanded Poland. However, he died in 1992 and left the duchy to his son, Bolesław I, the Brave. Bolesław ruled from 1992 until 1025. He built a major city of Poles called Gniezno, which was the seat of power for Poland. 
He expanded Poland even further than his father and became the first actual king of Poland in 1025. He also did die the same year. Nonetheless, Christianity, and specifically the Catholic faith, continued to spread in Poland and become deeply connected with the culture. In 1058, there was Kashmir the Restorer, who ended a few decades of instability by consolidating the power of the monarchy. He strengthened the monarchy by establishing the nation as a feudal system where the tops of society would be kings, followed by lords of the land, and then the common rabble. A little while after the rule of Kashmir was Bolesław III. He ruled from 1107 to 1138. He inherited Poland after it had lost some of its territories in the north to the Baltic states and the movement of German peoples. His reign was filled with military campaigns to recapture lost land. Before he died, he split Poland up in hopes to divide it amongst his sons and prevent fighting. Despite their father's wishes, dynastic conflict broke out because the brothers, between the brothers and Poland was split up for centuries to come. Try to keep track of how many times I say something like that because Poland gets partitioned, split, divided a lot, lot more times. This begins the disjointed period. And one of the first major figures of that was Conrad I of Masovia. He was Duke of this region from 1229 to 1232. He contacted the German Teutonic Knights to battle the Prussians in the region. Once a deal was struck, the Teutonic Knights lined up alongside the Masovians and defeated the Prussians in order to form their own home in the region. So the Knights ended up forming the state of the Teutonic Order, and the Teutonic Knights would use this northern port of Poland as a launching point for their battles in Livonia against the Baltic states. And following this would be years of struggle. There was the first Mongol invasion of Poland. It occurred from 1240 to 1241. The invasion sent fear across Poland because of the terror that was the Mongol force. Rape, destruction, and pillaging across the nation was unstoppable. It occurred from the top of Poland to the bottom. The entire eastern half was crushed, and... It was brutal, but this would not be the end because it was very hard for the Mongols to extend as far as they did, going from Mongolia all the way to Eastern Europe, so they weren't able to completely finish off Poland. After 18 years of recovery, Poland would be met once again. The second invasion of Poland from the Mongols was even more brutal than the first, and thousands more were slaughtered. But once again, this would not be the end. The resistance that came against the Mongols in Eastern Europe, and specifically in Poland, would keep the Mongols out once again. But nonetheless, there would be a third Mongol invasion of Poland, this time from 1278 to 1288. However, this one would be different. The Poles resisted, and for 10 years they fought back until the Mongols were defeated, or at the very least, decided that it was not worth continuing to batter the Polish. But despite the Polish success against the Mongol invasions, a lot of Poland's land was lost to neighboring powers because of different conflicts throughout history. Also around this time, connection with the German people was common in Poland. Because of how large the Holy Roman Empire was, there was a big ethnic exchange of Polish people into the empire and Germanic people into Poland. Which moves us to the short rule of Władysław I, who was also known as the Short. He was known as the Short for his size, but his reign in power was also quite short as well. He ruled from 1320 to 1333 and was the first hope for a reunified Poland. He started to make good diplomatic ties with local powers in hopes to have a new Polish state reestablished legally rather than through conquest. But nonetheless, he still did use a lot of the country's money to influence the growth of an army and train a strong combat force in case it was needed. Specifically, the Polish people saw how strong the Mongols were because of their horseback riding and started to really adopt it as part of their warrior culture. And towards the end of Władysław's reign, his son, 
Kashmir the Great was actually set to ascend the throne. Once his father died, Kashmir did succeed his father as king. He created great public works, expanded Poland to the west, furthered education, and made a huge move that was not done in the region ever before. He welcomed Jewish people into the nation and gave them protected rights. Kashmir was the last ruler of the Piast dynasty that dated all the way back to Poland's first leader, Mieszko I. And that last one was huge because and that last one was huge because up to this point, Jewish people had been consistently expelled out of European nations and sometimes faced brutal crusades. However, once the Jewish people started to move into Poland, they found a much more accepting culture. Throughout the 1300s, Kashmir would be the leader that allowed synagogues and Jewish learning centers to be built across Poland. And it was here that Jewish culture took real root. It would also be Kashmir who expanded rights of the Jewish people in certain areas of Poland to the whole nation as it continued to be established. And in 1370, King Kashmir the Great did die without a direct heir, and this left the Kingdom of Poland in control of his nephew, who was King Louis of Hungary. In 1384, King Louis would pass his kingdoms to his three daughters before his death. Sadly, one of his daughters did pass away, and the other two were meant to inherit the kingdoms. After a lot of debate, it was Jadwiga who became the next monarch of Poland. And this would lead to King Jadwiga of Poland ruling from 1384 to 1399. And yes, I did in fact say King Jadwiga. She was coordinated as King of Poland and widely accepted by those that supported her father, Louis. Jadwiga engaged to the Duke of Lithuania, Jogalia, and at the same time engaged to the Duke of Austria. She was seen as extremely powerful and did not see the need for a term that would be somewhat lesser than king. She did all the kingly things, inherited kingly power, did the exact same thing that a male sibling would do. So she did not think the term queen was fitting enough for the person who would run Poland. So King Jadwiga had to make a decision. Jogalia was the leader of a strong and massive state that was very wealthy, being Lithuania. And the Austrian duke was less appealing. Not only was he an older, fat, inbred man, but he also didn't have the same amount of influence of Jogalia. So eventually, Jadwiga left this unity and decided to deepen the one between herself and Jogalia. And this was known as the Union of Krewo, which connected Poland and Lithuania for the first time. The monarchs ruled their realms both separately and together. By this point, the Union already stretched from the Baltic to the Black Sea, but in a less convincing manner than it would in the future. The only issue with this Unity was that Poles far outnumbered the Lithuanians, mainly because of the fact that Lithuanians stayed mostly in the Livonian region of the Baltics. However, across this dual nation, Polish culture was rapidly spread alongside the Polish language, which is why so much Polish culture is able to survive in the rough years of Polish history, because it wasn't just in Poland, it was in the Baltics, it was in Belarus, it was in parts of Ukraine. It's huge. And the unity put pressure on the states of the Teutonic Order. The Teutonic Knights had been a bother to Poland and Lithuania because of the way they affected trade. In 1410, tensions between the states came to a head in the Battle of Grunwald. In the Battle of Grunwald, over 50,000 soldiers battled in central Poland, which made it one of the largest battles in the Middle Ages. However, in the end, the Teutonic Order was crushed in their most decisive defeat yet. Poland and Lithuania established themselves as great powers in the region. And then another resistance against Teutonic rule would brew into another war, specifically the Thirteen Years' War. It started because Prussians heavily resisted Teutonic presence in the area. The war was fought from 1454 to 1466, and Polish forces battled the Knights once again. The western half of the Teutonic land was annexed into Poland, and the rest was administered through the Polish-Lithuanian Union as the Duchy of Prussia. 
The expansion helped the Polish West gain control of Danzig and Konigsberg, which were major Baltic seaports. Trade was expanded farther than it ever had been for the Polish, and it led to the growth across the Union in economic prosperity. Trade was expanded farther than it ever had been for Poland, and it led to growth across the Union in all areas of economic prosperity. In the time of peace that followed the victory over the Teutonic Knights, bureaucracy was established and it became clear that the Polish system worked very well. Golden Liberty was the name of the Polish system of governance. It was marked by its vast liberalism and acceptance for the time. There was not a full democracy in Poland, but whenever a king was set to ascend the throne, there had to be an overwhelming majority approval process done by the parliament. So while most of Central, Eastern, and most of Western Europe was still allowing full-blown kings to just ascend the throne based purely on hierarchy, Poland was one of the ones deciding to put an early system of checks and balances in. It would also be at this time that Warsaw rose. For centuries, it was nothing but a lowly fishing town. But Polish folklore states that the powers that be blessed this city. The story goes that a fisherman named Varz was on the Vistula River, which dissects Poland, when he found a mermaid named Sawa, and they fell in love. Once they married, they created the town of Warsawa, which is Polish for Warsaw. And the development of Warsaw as no longer just a fishing town, but as the center of a lot of power, trade influence, and the main conductor for change across the Vistula River, this would all ring in the golden age of early Poland. Specifically, it was a cultural golden age. The 1460s to 1550s were the best era of Polish culture because the Renaissance in Western Europe inspired change within Poland. This period is when the greatest writers, scientists, artists, and chefs created pieces that would define Polish culture all the way to this day. We mentioned some of those things in the beginning, but I will give just a few more now before we get into the other parts of the history that continue to develop Polish culture. The most famous is Nicolaus Copernicus. He was a mathematician and astronomer who proposed the revolutionary idea about the universe. He proposed the heliocentric system, which suggested that planets orbit the sun and that Earth as a planet was not the center of everything. Besides the fact that he also stated that Earth orbits the sun annually and also turns once daily on its own axis. Of course, his ideas are 100% right and were the basis of all things we know about the solar system and how it works to this very day. And during this cultural revolution, there was also change religiously. Specifically, the Protestant Reformation occurred. It came out of Germany, or what eventually became Germany, but it caused a rupture in Poland because some people did actually accept these new teachings. Despite the century-long practice of Polish Catholicism, there was a Protestant wave in the country, but it would not end Catholic rule. Catholic tradition was shifted because in certain areas of Poland, some people would overall accept Protestantism if they were not persecuted for it, but less of the old, huge Polish cultural traditions were continued at this point. And after over a century of close ties and a growing relationship, Poland and Lithuania created the Union of Loveland. In 1569, this created the powerhouse state that was the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. Upon the time of its creation, it was the largest and most powerful state in Europe. The Commonwealth no longer had individual monarchs like the system established by Jadwiga and Jogalia. There would now be just one elected rather than hereditary monarch. The Commonwealth saw the weakness of the then-divided and vulnerable Muscovy of Russia, Polish kings were very interested in the succession crisis that occurred during the times of troubles in Russia and wanted to make a move. 
Polish kings threw their support behind whichever Russian heir they saw fit to rule. In 1609, the Commonwealth invaded Russia and started the Polish-Muscovite War. The war was fought from 1609 to 1618. Scholars debate who is the real aggressor in this conflict because Muscovite Russia had a long history of war and invasions against Lithuania and Poland. And then following this was the Poland-Ottoman War. There would be no rest for the Poles because in 1620, the, the Ottomans would invade. The war was fought from 1620 to 1621, and it was the first of many conflicts with the Ottomans. The war resulted in the territory of modern-day Moldova being released from the Commonwealth to the Ottomans in order for peace to occur. And then from the north came the Polish-Swedish War, which was fought from 1626 to 1629. Many conflicts between the two preceded this one, but in this conflict, the legendary Swedish king Gustavus Adolphus was present on the Swedish side. His leadership was the balance tilt that pushed Sweden to victory after three long years of conflict. Land concessions were made and Poland weakened some more. Then there was the Treaty of Bromberg, which was a 1657 treaty that partitioned parts of Poland in favor of Prussia. Prussia had claims in Poland that went back to the 1500s and before, when members of the Polish bloodline would be succeeded by heirs that were Prussian or of the Holy Roman Empire. So as Prussia began to run itself up as one of the most prominent states of the HRE, they wanted to claim more and more of the old lands they thought were theirs. And Poland was now divided in so many directions by so many wars and had to negotiate any of its own defenses with Lithuania that it didn't want to fight this. So a lot of concessions were made, mainly to keep Prussia off its back and to avoid another war. Around the 1660s, Poland was much less stable and weak than it had been before due to all the consistent conflicts. This was the period known as the Deluge. The struggle at this time was emphasized by the Russo-Polish War and the Second Northern War between 1648 and 1667, where Poland was continuously partitioned and invaded by other great powers. And then, of course, there was another Polish-Ottoman War. This time it was fought from four years between 1672 and 1676. But after four years of brutal fighting, the Commonwealth decided that sacrificing the region of Ukraine to the Ottomans would be the best way to end the conflict rather than let it go on and let more blood be spilled. However, the conflict with the Ottomans would be far from over. John Sobieski III was a great Polish soldier that reigned as king from 1674 to 1696. And in 1683, he led the famous Winged Hussars against the Ottomans. He charged his forces south to the Battle of Vienna, where they smashed the Ottoman forces. The efficiency, size, and strength of the Winged Hussars became very clear when this heavy cavalry smashed through the, other, the otherwise impenetrable Ottoman forces. The Ottomans were decimated by the Hussars and were kept out of Europe's heartland. Poland was regarded as the savior of Europe, because had the Battle of Vienna been lost, it is impossible to understate how much influence the Ottomans would have had. Vienna and all the regions around it were the last frontier of Central Europe, and if the Ottomans got that, who knows how far they would have gotten, and history would have looked very different. The winged hussars were the absolute strongest heavy cavalry unit in Europe. They originally started as a Hungarian mercenary force. However, they were accepted into the Polish system of warfare in the early 1500s. While in the Polish ranks, the Hussars adopted the metal wings on the back of their armors. They were created to actually train horses. They clanked really loudly when they were equipped and used by riders, and it would help train the horses to be completely resistant to loud noise on the battlefield, which would make the horses much more confident and strong as they charged into battle. 
The Hussars had been involved in every single battle Poland was in from 1500s all the way until the Battle of Vienna. And it is in the Battle of Vienna that they have their biggest impact, where it looked like the European powers were going to lose. Vienna was battered, but the Wicked Hussars came in, hundreds of them. And the charge they had smashed the Ottomans, got right through their forces, killed everyone they need to, and sent the Ottomans packing. It's insane. Their armor looked very, very sick. Having literal metal wings while on the back of an armored horse is madness. So it was incredible, and they are a huge, huge part of Polish pride in their history, and I had to acknowledge it because I think they're cool as fuck. But things would not stay all fine and dandy for Poland. Despite being hailed as a great leader of the success for Europe, Poland still had to deal with other European powers. There was a Swedish invasion of Poland from 1701 to 1706. For five years, the Swedes battered Poland and decisively gained victory. The Swedes conquered most of Livonia and weakened Polish cities. This time was known as the Swedish Deluge. Dynastic issues in the Polish royal family caused the War of Polish Succession. Poland was very divided. There was a lot of struggles top to bottom, and they had to continuously lose land over and over, which caused there to be a lot of issues under the current leaders. Once Augustus II passed, there was no clear heir, and because of the state of Poland, tensions were very high, and people were willing to die to get power. The war was fought from 1733 to 1735, and it was between those who supported Stanislaus I and those who supported Augustus III. This was a civil war between heirs and all those that supported them. The other European powers joined the conflict in the pursuit of their own national interests. France and Spain were testing the power of the Habsburgs in Western Europe, so they supported Stanislaus I. But the Kingdom of Prussia, Saxony, and Russia mobilized to support Augustus III. After two years of brutal fighting across Poland and a lot of Polish deaths, the ascension of Augustus III was confirmed. In addition to Russia and Saxony, he was politically supported by the Habsburgs. Then there was Stanislav II. He was named King of Poland in 1764 because he had deep, deep personal ties to Catherine the Great, who was beginning to influence all of Eastern Europe. It was very clear that he was a plant of the Russian throne in Poland. Because of this, he was also the last Polish king of this era. Poland continued to decline in both economic and, and its influence over the region, which led to the larger states of Europe, like Germany and Russia, to chip away at its territories. The pressure on Poland caused its parliament to falter. Out of fear, Polish officials unintentionally made it very complicated to mobilize the army and stand up against foreign rule. This is why it became very easy for large foreign powers to bully Poland into submission. Throughout the late 1700s, Poland was partitioned over and over. Three partitions came from Russia, Prussia, and Austria, which began in 1772. The partitions took away much of the outer border of Poland, which actually ended the Commonwealth because now Lithuania had been crushed. The Polish parliament was forced to accept these because it did not have the strength to fight the invading troops, and they just continued to try and appease these larger powers that were coming towards them in hopes to preserve some pride and success. However, in 1791, Poland started to adopt a French revolutionary system that would change the constitution to be more liberal and dividing of power. This move caused a great divide in Poland between those that were pro the new constitution and those that wanted to remain loyal to the crown. Russia dubbed Poland a sympathizer of France because they wanted to abolish all monarchies. So, Russia invaded once again in 1792. However, this time, they invaded on behalf of those that opposed the constitution in hopes to uphold their own desires. 
Despite the encroaching forces, there was a great resistance, and none was more prominent than Tadeusz Kuzuszko. He was a great Polish commander in the late 1700s, and he tried to free Polish peoples from their stateless fate. He found a lot of support among the middle and lower class of Poland, and used this to launch a small-scale military campaign against those that partitioned Poland. He found early successes in the movement by fending off invasions from Prussia and Austria while expanding Polish territory, but he was unable to hold on to the grip because of how large these powers were. No foreign power supported this new Poland that was trying to reconnect itself and trying to defend the little bit of land it had left. And eventually, more partitions came because the Russians, Austrians, and Germans all fell on Poland like a guillotine and took it away. The partitions were in 1793 and 1795. And after that last partition, there was no Poland, only Polish people living in territories of other nations. Western and parts of northern Poland became German. Southern and western parts became Austrian, and the entire eastern part of Poland was taken by Russia. There was no Poland. The Polish people were still here and very much ready to fight for their land, but Poland itself was gone, and it would remain this way for over a century. In ethnically Polish areas that no longer belonged to a united Poland, the Poles were treated as second-class citizens, stripped of their right to worship and speak their mother tongue. Artists, inventors, scientists, and many other types of creatives that tried to define that golden age period of Poland were now persecuted for any time they tried to uphold Polish culture. Massive amounts of Poles lived in exile because they would have been prosecuted as criminals in their land that they once called home. And another major effect with this was how industrialization happened. In the western parts of former Poland, the German influence brought really rapid industrialization, which led to better quality of life and led to more liberal ideas. It can be seen in the voting maps of today, where Poland in the west is more accepting, it's more advanced, the cities look different, because dating all the way back to here, when it was in the partition period, countries like Germany were rapidly increasing how great the country was growing, but... The eastern half, controlled by Russia, modernized far slower, nearly 50 to 60 years slower. So just like Russia, this eastern half isn't as modernized. It isn't as quick and rapid in its growth, and that's why it is more traditional. Among other things we'll get into, but you could see this on voting maps with Poland today, and literally old colonial lines, the ones drawn at this point by Russia and Germany, are some of the most significant markers for why voting in Poland, why the culture is different from region to region. So don't let anyone tell you that this old stuff doesn't matter because this is why we get the Poland we get today. Nonetheless, a very influential man would start to change Poland. His name was Napoleon Bonaparte. I'm not going to get into who he is too much because if you don't know the name, you'll need a lesson in French history, which I will be giving you in a few months. But nonetheless, he ascended to lead France by 1803. He was a juxtaposition to the previous rulers of France and any of the other monarchs in Europe. As he launched his coalition wars across Central and Eastern Europe, he found an ally with the Poles. The stateless and unrepresented Polish population had no problem fighting alongside the French forces who sought to challenge all of the powers that wiped Poland off the map. Therefore, a huge Polish civilian and military resistance occurred in the heartland of what was once Poland. The combination of French and Polish forces actually pushed most powers out of Poland. Further servitude during the wars... Napoleon created the Duchy of Warsaw as an independent Polish state. Poles also fought alongside France during the invasion of Russia, which of course turned very sour. 
Russian forces ended up pushing back the French and Polish forces. Then Russian soldiers marched further into Poland than they had ever done before, thus re-establishing Russian control across the area and cementing the non-existence of Poland. However, this would not be a complete failure for the Poles. The rebellious fire that was lit by the Napoleon era continued to burn in the heart of the Poles. Generation after generation, there was a new uprising in some form that would attempt to rebel against those that partitioned Poland. Some of the most famous works of Polish culture drew their inspiration from the times of partitioned Poland. Adam Mizeskwicz and Eric Chopin were a poet and composer respectively. Their works are famous for both their inspiration in partitioned Poland and because of the fact that they were so well written or composed to explain Polish culture and Polish struggle that they actually created revolutions. People tried to rebel against their powers after reading these papers. People would hear songs by Chopin or read the poetry by Miskezwicz and literally go, all right, yeah, this makes sense. We should not have to deal with this. Let's fight. And it would lead to a bunch of uprisings, and I'll get into some of them now. There was a November uprising, which lasted from 1830 to 1831, and Polish peoples attempted to unite in the East and challenge Russian rule. And this conflict went back and forth, but within a year, Russia did trample the Polish resistance with brutal effort. Hundreds were killed, most were arrested, and anyone who tried to resist after this was killed just the same. But then there was the nationalistic-driven European-wide revolts of 1848, so there was the Great Poland Uprising. Polish nationals attempted to break from the Germanic rule, but Prussia cracked down without hesitation. Despite the name the Great Polish Uprising, the resistance was quelled in less than a year, and although many cities came up and shouted, Warsaw tried, all these cities tried, they were still smashed by the Prussians, and Poland had to remain in its disjointed state. And then, however, there was the January Uprising, which lasted from 1863 in January until 1864. This was the longest-lasting resistance to foreign rule in the partitioned Poland period. Young Polish service members started the uprising, which was joined by the Lithuanians. The struggle between the suppressed force and the Russians continued for a year, but the Russian force came back with a lot of fury. They quelled the rebellion and enacted a harsher rule over the Poles than ever before. Polish ideas, culture, gatherings, freedom of speech was all taken away because the Russians did not want to deal with another uprising. But nonetheless, the Poles would not give up. I'm going to go international for a sec because something happens a little bit west of Poland that does affect Poland. And that was German unification. It was achieved by the end of 1871, and this had a great effect on Poland because the new nation of Germany no longer wanted to play nice with its neighbors. Germany wanted to be the next great power of Europe, and was willing to challenge anyone to reach that goal. Nationalism grew across Germany, never left the Poles, and was spread across all of Europe. The rapid spread of nationalism, the arms race, complicated alliances, and a whole lot of greed and desire pushed Europe to a breaking point. The pride of Germany and desire to become one of the great powers clashed with all these things. It clashed with Russia, it clashed with France, and then there was World War I. The complex situation of Poland's non-existence caused trouble because there was about 3.5 million Polish soldiers in the war that fought on both sides. Polish people often fought against their fellow Polish nationals because of the battle lines that were drawn. Russia was forced to face its former allies in both Germany and Austria, the same two powers that helped them partition Poland over a hundred years before. However, the power of industrialized Germany, Austria, and the millions of Polish fighters was too much for the unstable Russian state to handle, 
So after getting aid and having to deal with their own things, they actually pulled out of the war in 1917. And the Poles didn't get the nice end of the stick. Poland was the battlefield for Germany and Russia because of how far west Russia had expanded and how far east Germany wanted to expand. Poland was the eastern front of World War I. Most of you have read the book All's Quiet on the Western Front, which talks a lot about the fighting between French and Germans. But the eastern front, when Poland didn't even exist, almost every time a gun was shot to kill someone, it was shot by a Pole at a Pole to kill a Polish person. Fighting for a state that wasn't theirs. Fighting for either Russia or Germany, two of the countries that ripped them apart. So, this war is tense for Poland, but it gets much worse. Once the war ended, the Treaty of Versailles and the 14 points by Woodrow Wilson did call for the creation of a Polish state. So, on October 7, 1918, 123 years of wishes were answered when the Second Polish Republic was created. Polish people were able to preserve their language, culture, and history without having a state or government to help them for 123 years. Also during this time, there was the rise of Lenin and socialism in Russia. After World War I, Russia and Leninists sought to expand the socialist influence west, and Russia invaded Poland and began the Polish-Soviet War. It wasn't even a full year that Poland got to exist before having to fight against a great power that divided it over a century before. And so, the war would go on from 1918 to 1921. The war was a brutal battle of attrition between the world's largest armed force and the most gritty, passionate, spiteful, and motivated Polacks in history. The Polish shocked the world when they actually won the Great Battle of Warsaw in 1920. The Poles were outmanned, outgunned, and definitely had the disadvantage in location and technology. But nonetheless, the Poles were not going to give up the state they had just gotten back. Up to this point, anyone who was fighting in that battle had only heard stories of Poland. Only heard from their grandfathers and from the history books that there was this land called Poland. And now that they had it back, they were not going to give it up. The Polish won the Battle of Warsaw and then stood firm. The Russian force backpedaled and left Poland alone. For now. Józef Pulzetsky was named the Prime Minister of the Second Republic of Poland upon its creation. He was the leader throughout the Polish-Soviet War and represented the desire for a stronger and more diverse Poland. But Poland, just like the rest of the world, would get crushed by the Great Depression. When the stock market of the United States died, it took the world with it. The prices for everything went down. The value of currency globally crashed. The American market clearly was the powerhouse of the 1900s, and when it went down, so did everyone else. Poland was hit extremely hard by the Great Depression, a nation that was just redeveloping after many brutal wars and thousands of its nationals dying, now had high unemployment rates, a currency that was dropping in value, and a lack of idea on how to solve anything. But eventually, aid came trade with the U.S. helped, the U.S. recovered, Western Europe recovered, and Europe started to get back on its feet after the Great Depression. And, however, there was a change. Rapid modernization actually came in spite of all the issues with the Great Depression. Poland was introduced to many of the things that Germany had gotten earlier. The western part of Poland that was industrialized by the Germans started to influence the central, south, and eastern parts of the country. Poland now started to become a bigger country and industry, able to produce a lot of things because of its size and because of its hard-working population. 
it was willing to farm, it was willing to create things in the industry, it was willing to do whatever it needed to do to grow, and this led to rapid modernization. Railroads were built nationwide, railroads were built to connect the Baltic trade ports to the center of Poland, and then to connect that all the way to outside of Poland. Poland grew super, super quick. But all this came to an end because of Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin. In August of 1939, Germany and the USSR made a secret non-aggression act pact known as the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. Germany and the USSR decided that they would both invade Poland and split the nation down the middle. And the invasion of Poland began World War II, because as soon as the Germans stepped over that western border, Britain decided that that was all was necessary. And before I say anything about World War II, I, through the eyes of Poland, just need to warn you, this gets horrific really, really fast. And I'm not holding back on any of it. So if you don't want to hear about it, if this is going to keep you up at night, give you any triggers, anything like that, take the time to step away now. And if you want to listen to the rest of the episode, I say give it at least 10, 15 minutes after this because World War II was really, really bad for Poland. So here we go. As you can expect, World War II hit Poland harder than almost any other nation in the world. The Polish forces were the first in the world to experience the blitzkrieg tactic from Nazi Germany, which was the tactic where newly created planes would fall from the skies, raining bombs and thunder down upon them. Tanks would come rolling in, and then after the troops were battered, people would march in and take over city by city. Each piece of land they took made the machine more efficient. It was called the lightning tactic for a reason. Like, Germany came in swinging. Polish resistance had always been bright and burning, and had always been present, but never was it stronger than it was in World War II. The Poles resisted hard, and as hard as they could, and continued to fight Nazi Germany with all their might in the West, but it only took a few short weeks for Warsaw to fall. Yet this would not be the end of the Polish resistance in the war. Many Poles moved West to reunite with the Allied powers in hopes to challenge Nazi Germany. Alongside the Polish people that moved west was the members of the Polish parliament that went into the UK to seek refuge. Those that didn't leave took guerrilla warfare in local small towns and throughout the forests of Poland. Because of this, Warsaw, despite being surrounded, had not been fully defeated yet. The Nazis had made their move on the capital, but I'll get into it in a sec. This wasn't over. There was also weak propaganda put out by the German Nazis that stated the Polish were very inept in the way they fought against the Panzer tanks. Germans claimed that disoriented Polish used their cavalry against German tanks, but this is just one of the many false claims by the brain-dead Nazis to try and express their superiority. Cavalry was common for everyone, and yes, there was times when the Polish had the cavalry units around tanks, but the tanks unsurprisingly won, but the Germans had just as many cavalry units German officers, I should say Nazi officers, but German Nazi officers rode on horseback into battle. It was symbolic. They claimed to be Caesars, all these different things. So this is just another level of propaganda and somewhat explanation for why Germany thinks it's okay that they can treat other people in the way they do, trying to build this platform of superiority against them. However, Let's not neglect the fact that the USSR was bludgeoning the eastern side of Poland even while the nasty blitzkrieg was happening. The Katyn massacre occurred in the Katyn forces of East Poland in 1941. 22,000 Polish officers and their allies were executed in a brutal act of inhumanity by the Soviets. Anyone who was seen as a chance to resist was killed. There was no option for surrender. There was no option for 
cordialness or occupation. It was just kill, burn, move on. 22,000 people killed in just a few days by the Soviets. It would also be in this year that the Nazis became enemies of the Soviets when they launched Operation Barbarossa to push them out of the USSR. The Nazis pushed the Soviets back to Stalingrad and other major Russian cities. The rivalry of the Nazis and Soviets was rekindled with Poland as the battlefield. The Wola Massacre was another brutal atrocity for the Nazis committed in 1944. Between 40 and 50,000 Poles were executed by Nazi forces that invaded the Wola neighborhood of Warsaw. Polish culture was also routed as the Nazis destroyed monuments and other pillars of the Polish past in order to Germanify the Polish and suppress their resistance. The sickening actions of the Nazis in the Wola Massacre inspired the anger and pride within the Poles that became the Warsaw Uprising. The Poles in Warsaw knew that they needed to make a move to liberate themselves from the Nazis because no help was coming. So on August 1st of 1944, the Home Army of Poland launched a somewhat coordinated attack against Nazi forces. The Poles were very unarmed and didn't have the technology, but still managed to take over major production factories and armories in the city. Heinrich Heimler, the second most powerful man of Nazi Germany, and the organizer of the Holocaust, retaliated. He ordered the Nazis to go home to home in the resistance areas of Warsaw and kill anyone inside. Elders, children, and babies were not spared from this brutal fate from the Nazis. Nearly 10,000 people were killed in their homes in just a few weeks. To continue the resistance, the Grey Ranks were established. Boy and Girl Scouts as the main members, with Boys and Girl Scouts as the main members. The older Boy Scouts fought directly against the Nazis in Warsaw. They were trained by their fathers and other troop leaders to learn how to fire a gun if they didn't already know. The Girl Scouts were mainly medics and other crucial support positions. But the younger boys would act as couriers and do other work that was great for their small and nimble figures. The hope was that the youngins could avoid combat, but this wasn't the case, because many of them had to fight in fatal battles against the Nazis, some of the victims being as young as eight years old. They were called the bees because they moved like a hive and did all they could to swarm the Nazi forces. All members of the Grey Ranks took an oath to die for the cause if need be. And yes, that included the Boys and Girl Scouts, who were as young as eight years old. The Grey Ranks were able to push the Nazis out of a Warsaw ghetto that had a Jewish concentration camp. The survivors of the camp were recruited to fight their Nazi oppressors, and they fought like hell. They couldn't believe they were alive, the few hundred of them that there were. But when they were armed with Polish steel and a lot of pride from the Polish, they realized that they had a chance to get revenge on the people who had treated them in the worst way humans had ever been treated. The same people that murdered their loved ones were now standing across from them on a battlefield. So these people that survived this Jewish camp were brutal on the battlefield, and they were very much a part of the resistance. Then, the Nazi forces used a disgusting tactic across the rest of the city. German panzer tanks were rolled into Warsaw as they had been before, but this time they did something different. The tanks all rolled behind lines of Polish women that were beaten, abused, and forced to act as human shields for the tanks. The members of the Grey Ranks didn't know how to handle it, and a struggle for progress continued. These people didn't know how to fire around an innocent woman or girl to hit a tank. People didn't want to throw grenades because it might kill innocent Polish women. It was unreasonable. There was no way to fight this because there was no way to get to these tanks or fight back against the Nazis without killing more innocent women and girls. But there was a few shimmers of what seemed like hope. The Soviets sent in the Volunteer Army of the East 
The Soviets allowed what was the volunteer army of East Poland that worked under them to attempt a Polish liberation because the people that made up this volunteer force were all Polish. They had family that lived in Warsaw or their families came from Warsaw in the past generation. So this was by no means some move from Russia through the USSR to help Poland. It was just, oh, you guys are Polish. You're not one of our troops. You can just go fight over there anyways. They were a volunteer army of the USSR. So the Soviets said, hey, if you guys go over there and do have some success, sure. But what Stalin wanted and knew was that this Polish force was not going to have success, and it would do two things. It would weaken the amount of Poles he had to deal with later, and it would weaken the Nazi forces even by a little bit because of how many would be killed by the angry Polish. The army was only 1,600 strong and lightly armored, so most of the force was strutted by German gunfire. No further attempts on Warsaw would be made by the Soviets while the Nazi forces were still present. Keep that in mind. The resistance force cried out for help, but it only came once. The Americans attempted a supply drop into Warsaw, but most of it was misplaced and ended up intercepted behind Nazi lines. The failure of the assistance mission prompted the U.S. to focus on its western conflict of war. The Polish resistance was again completely alone. Continued shelling of the city destroyed almost all of Warsaw. The last bit of the resistance mounted into every one of the few buildings that remained. But as the Nazi force continued to pour into the city, it became clear the only way to save some lives was surrender. Nazis proposed terms of surrender that would have Warsaw completely depopulated, but no further executions would occur. The Poles reluctantly accepted. The last act of resistance was the acts of Polish citizens who forged immigration papers for Jewish Poles that would have been killed if discovered as Jewish. 500,000 Warsaw citizens were sent out of the nation and 15,000 home army members became POWs to the Nazis, prisoners of war. However, it was not that simple. 60,000 people were marked as undesirables and were forced into death camps. Another 90,000 were sent to work in the forced labor camps across the Nazi territories. And then, as a final act of Nazi evil, Heimler ordered Warsaw to be wiped off the map. With bombs, flamethrowers, and dynamites, the Nazis destroyed almost 90% of the buildings that were ever built in Warsaw. While Polish resisted heavily against the Nazi occupation of Warsaw, the Soviet forces moved to reconquer the land they lost to the Nazis. The hope of the Poles was that the Soviets would remain neutral or at some point try to push the Nazis out, but this did not happen. The brutality of the Warsaw Uprising was very apparent to the Soviets who sat in wake. They waited all the way until the Nazis started to retreat because of how strong the American force was in West Germany. Once the Nazis were gone, the Soviets made their move. They came in on the battered and brutalized Polish capital, and the Red Army marched into the land where once Great Warsaw stood. They encapsulated Poland with ease and refused to let it go. On their march in, the Soviet invasion was uniquely disgusting. With all the destruction that occurred across East Poland, Soviet soldiers simultaneously pillaged, raped, and abused any part of Poland they saw fit. The amount of numbers that have been reported since on cases of sexual assault and rape in East Poland by the Soviet forces is in the thousands. It happened to boys, girls, women, anyone that the Soviets saw fit. It is one of the worst acts of the war that continues to fly under the radar because of the fact that the USSR happened to be on the right side of the war at the end. But it was the USSR that discovered the Nazi death camps and concentration camps that had killed Jews and minorities throughout the entirety of the war. The horror of the Holocaust became very apparent because of how publicized these discoveries were. And now, I'm going to acknowledge the Holocaust and all the things that happened with it in the country that has suffered from it most.
it was the worst in Poland. The Holocaust was. It was worse there than anywhere in Europe, and it was the worst Jew-killing concentration camps ever. Sobodor, Treblinka, Chelmino, Majdanbek, Belzec, and the horribly famous Auschwitz were all Nazi death camps that killed so many Jewish people. The Nazis forced Polish people out of their homes and expanded and turned them into concentration camps. German expats were moved into Polish homes, and the original inhabitants were forced to work 10 to 14 hour days to help the German war machine. One of the greatest books I've ever read was called The Last Green Valley, and was a detailed recapment of an ethnically German family that lived in Ukraine that experienced being moved across the long trek from Ukraine to Poland and Germany, and spending time living in Polish people's homes, living in Polish people's clothes of Jewish people that were taken away and eventually put into concentration camps. And while we're on the subject, these same people also got abused by the USSR once they moved in. Once the USSR came in, people were decided if they were German or not, and if they were German or spoke German, they were sent straight to the gulag to go work endless hard hours in Siberia and parts of the Soviet Union. But back to the Holocaust, by the end of this brutal six-year period, three million Polish Jews were massacred. It's a fact. Three million Polish Jews were killed. And only 50,000 people made it out of the concentration camps across Poland. There's no words to describe it. There's no words that make it okay. There's no words that ease the pain of this. But Poland suffered from this war. And as the war came to a close, as USSR moved in from the east, the U.S. moved in from the west, and then the U.S. dropped bombs on Japan, the reality of what happened to Poland came out. While the war raged on for its last bit, 1.6 million Polish prisoners of war were exiled to Stalin's gulags in the eastern part of Russia. And once the war ended, it was revealed that about 2 million non-Jewish citizens of Poland were executed across the nation, and about 200,000 soldiers were killed. Coupling these horrendous figures with the fact that 3 million Jews were killed in the Nazi Holocaust, the final death toll showed that over 20% of all Polish citizens of all Polish citizens showed that 20% of all Polish citizens had been killed by the war. This was by far the highest percentage of any nation affected by the conflict. However, I'm going to give you a quick positive break. After all that with the war, the horrors of the war, the disgusting act of the Holocaust, and the nation that was hit harder by it than anywhere else, the most disgusting, consistent, concentrated Jewish killing in history happened in Poland. After all that, there was one little thing during the war that I'm going to give you to just ease the air before we tell the rest of this nation's history. During World War II, the Polish enlisted a special ally named Wojciech. He was a Syrian brown bear. In 1942, Polish refugees moving to the Polish refugee camp in Tehran, Iran, met and found a small bear cub that was orphaned because a hunter had killed its mother. He struggled to eat, so he was nursed to health by the Polish refugees, who used condensed milk and honey to help him. The Polish refugees took care of the bear. Then, they encouraged the lieutenant of the camp to buy the bear. Once he was bought, this lieutenant had him transported to the 22nd Artillery Supply Company in Poland. The soldiers gave him the name Wojciech, which means Happy Warrior in Old Slavic. Wojciech quickly became the soldier bear, a mascot of the 22nd Artillery Forces. Wojciech was taught to drink beer and smoke like a Polish soldier. 
He learned how to stand and walk on his hind legs for a few short minutes to mimic the soldiers that he was around. The soldiers also taught him to salute with his paw when greeted, and he was a soldier with his own rank, serial number, paybook, and commands. The soldiers slept next to him at night for warmth on cold nights, and at least a few sources also recalled the bear carrying a mission. And at least a few sources also recall Wojciech being used as a bear to carry ammunition on his back. His most famous moment was in 1944 when at the Battle of Monte Cristo in Italy, where he was regarded for it. His most famous moment was in 1944 at the Battle of Monte Cassino in Italy. He was regarded for his strength in carrying crates of ammunition back and forth on the battlefield to supply the Poles in this brutal conflict. Once the war ended, Wojciech and most of the 22nd Artillery Force moved to Edinburgh, Scotland, which specifically had a farm and zoo for the bear to live on. He lived for 18 years after the war and died peacefully in Scotland. He is still honored to this day as the Polish war bear, Wojciech of the 22nd Artillery Force. But now back to history. After the war, Soviets marched across Poland to defeat the Germans, and now we can get to the post-war. After the Soviets marched across Poland to defeat the Germans in the east, Stalin made sure that Poland was made into a socialist state. The Soviets established control over the eastern third of Poland. Simultaneously, they gave Poland control over the regions called Pomerania, Silesia, and Prussia, which the USSR took from Germany in the war. Millions upon millions of Poles and Germans were both removed from their homes that lived in them for generations. Millions upon millions of Poles and Germans were removed from the homes that they lived in for generations. Poles in the Far East moved out of their homes. They wanted to flee to the West while they still could. They didn't want to live under Soviet rule and definitely didn't want to be in the part that was directly claimed by the Soviets. And the Germans that lived in Silesia, Pomerania, and Prussia definitely didn't want to be there because now that the Poles were being forced west, it meant that they would be forced out. So this is considered the largest ethnic redistribution since the Great Migration nearly 2,000 years before. The addition of the German states to Poland and the removal of the east practically set the borders for Poland we know today. The land realignment caused a huge change in the culture because so many Poles in the east had to abandon cultural centers and the old traditions. And this is one of the reasons given to explain why Poland is divided east to west in modern voting maps. Those in the west were the ones that had to leave behind a lot of the culture they had in the east to accept western Polish culture and would eventually be the first to get access to the far west, like the US and all that, their influence toward the end of the Cold War. Those in the East tend to lean to be more traditional and conservative because it was them who had to be directly under Russian-Soviet rule while trying to maintain Polish culture. They're the ones that had to hold on to their Catholic faith, hold tightly and secretly onto Polish songs, Polish food, Polish language while the Soviets were there. So the East tends to be very conservative in Poland and the West tends to be very liberal or at least more liberal than its Eastern half. Following this early occupation, the Polish People's Republic was established in 1947. It was a communist state that was firmly behind the Iron Curtain. Poland was set up as a state fully controlled by Russian Soviets. The pre-World War II government that fled the, to the United Kingdom was forced to remain in exile. Stalin simply didn't recognize them as rightful members of the Polish government. And then there were the Nuremberg Trials. They were set in motion to try Nazi leaders for the genocide during the Holocaust and the other limitless acts of inhumanity that they committed during the war. 
However, the USSR was able to escape every single horrid crime they committed because of the fact that they ended the war on the right side of it. Since they were allied powers, they were good. So this meant that the USSR would not have to answer for the Katyn massacre. The millions of prisoners of the millions of prisoners of war that ended up in the Gulag or the women that the Soviets raped across Poland. So very quickly, there was an anti-communist resistance. Throughout the 40s and early 1950s, there was a strong Polish uprising. Guerrilla fighters challenged the Soviets across the nation in its rural parts, but were unable to end Soviet control. The Warsaw Pact was signed by the puppet government in 1955 to unite the Eastern Bloc into a NATO-style alliance. This also helped the Soviets consolidate power behind the Polish military since it was the buffer state to the West. Soviet rule was exploited in its early years. The Soviet system made all parts of the economy, from infrastructure to resources, part of a nationalized system. The Soviets continued to extract resources and anything else they wanted from Polish lands as part of the communist system. None of the wealth was redistributed and it felt more like a Mongol tributary system than it did a system of governance. In the Stalinist era, as is referred to, Poland faced struggles top to bottom and was immeasurably impoverished. The Stalinist era was also heavily suppressive to Polish culture and hopes to homogenize the culture of the Soviet Union. There was consistent growth in Poland alongside the development of many industries. The Soviets helped set up Polish United Workers' Party as the communist representatives in Poland, and this party still exists today as the Polish People's Republic. Nonetheless, the 1960s were filled with economic hardship as the economy was unable to grow. Part of the reason was an insatiable, was an instable system and lack of access to trade partners in the West. This led to food prices and cost of living skyrocketing. To protest this, there was the student strike of 1968. Students and other intellectuals led protests across Polish cities. From Warsaw to Poznan, there was widespread earnest movements against the United Workers' Party. The government suppressed the movement by attacking hundreds to thousands of protesters in different areas. This set the precedent that the resistance against the Soviet Union would not be tolerated. The end of the 1960s also marked the end of a major era in Polish history. The small but remaining Jewish population in Poland moved out of the country into Israel, and this closed the long story of Jewish history in Poland. Then there was the 1970 Polish protests. They began in Gdansk, Sistich, and Gdynia, because workers at those port cities had suffered the worst of the workplace abuse and had nasty living conditions. The workers organized a unified strike, and then they had to face the United Workers' Party. The party put down the resistance by killing 44 people and wounding a thousand more. Prime Minister Piotr Yaroszewicz mandated an increase in food costs to offset the increasing debt of the nation. This enraged the people because all prices were set by the government. So now food was as high as 30 to 100% more expensive for people that were already struggling in a country system that was in debt. The Polish system created by the Soviets during the time of occupation was horrendous because of how nationalized things were in Warsaw and the rest of Poland. Nothing was going to Poland. It was all going towards this idea of if it goes back to Russia, all of the Soviet Union will benefit, yada yada, all this stupidity that the communist system preached. And it made Poland really poor. All of it made Poland poor. It made debt shoot through the roof. It was brutal. 
So all of this contributed to people who were already poor now having to pay a higher price for the cost of living. And of course, people did not stand for this, especially the Poles who will resist anything they don't like, which formed into the June 1976 protest. There were six days of protests from June 24th to June 30th. There was peaceful protests in some parts of the cities and large, violent looting riots in others. The government used tanks and helicopters to suppress the opposition. And despite the suppression, the Prime Minister, Yaroszewicz, was removed. The government placed its political and economic ineptitude in the spotlight because not only was the country completely unstable economically, now it was clear that the Soviets couldn't even run a political system, couldn't run a country without it falling apart or getting into chaos. And then a quick side note is that Karol Wojtyla was the cardinal of the Polish Catholic Church. In 1978, he became Pope John Paul II, and this was a huge moment of pride for Poland, because the Catholic nation produced the most holy man in their religion. John Paul II is venerated across Polish cities. His name adorns many streets, monuments, and other commemorations. He is a legendary figure to traditional Poles, and he is still celebrated to this day for what he meant to the country. You could see John Paul II, his name, his likeness, all throughout Poland. Lake Walesia was the leader and founder of Solidarity, which was a free trade union that advocated for Polish nationalism. Solidarity lobbied the government for a better quality of life for its people. The Solidarity movement called for the end of communist rule. Solidarity organized and started the first nationwide workers' protest in 1981. Protests of this caliber would continue throughout the 1980s and culminated with the election of 1989. The pressure was on. The Communist Party clearly did not succeed. The communist system did not succeed. Everyone in Poland was suffering from unemployment, a devalued currency, increased inflation rates, things across the board. And it all came from the system that nationalized the government. Everything in Poland was taken away from them and was meant to contribute towards the Russian system and quote-unquote benefit the rest of the Soviet Union. It was baloney. It was horseshit. It was all lies that were preached as part of what the Soviet system was, but as we all know, it failed. And it failed in Poland, that's why there were nationwide protests. So, once this election came, the people of Poland wanted to show how they felt. The Communist Party lost almost every seat in the 1989 election. Parliament was now as uncommunist as it can be. There was still a few seats reserved for communist members because of the fact that the Soviet Union still was in power for the next two years, but anything the people could take away from the Communist Party, they did. And following this election, the Communist Party was disbanded, and the Constitution of Poland was amended many times. This allowed the government that had been in exile in the UK for nearly 40 years to return to Poland. With this government, a return to a decentralized economic system was created and was done with the hope to pull the nation out of its $20 billion debt that was created by the Soviets. The end of the Soviet rule and communism in the nation was fully achieved when the eastern part of Poland was abandoned by the Soviets as the Soviet Union fell in the glorious year of 1991. Once the Soviets were gone, Poland rejoiced, and Poland knew that there was nothing great to celebrate. There was work to be done, and a lot of it. Poland had been destroyed and underdeveloped since World War II, and now was the time to change that. Lech Walesia, who formed Solidarity, became president of independent Poland in 1990, and won the first free elections in 45 years. A liberal democratic political system modeled after the Western nations was accepted.
By the end of 1993, all Russian troops had left Poland. Poland joined NATO in 1999 and the EU in 2003. Since joining them, Poland's continued to grow in all areas. The unity with NATO made Poland shift heavily towards Western politics, which has made it an enemy of Russia, but has allowed Poland to reallocate its sources from the war prep to domestic growth. Joining the European Union has helped stabilize Poland in almost every way. More tourism has come to the country because of the Schengen Zone, and the country has been able to help the currency and inflation of the nation have also been stabilized due to the EU. And on top of this, relations with greater Europe have never been stronger. The Harvard Business Review gave the perfect description of the post-Soviet Polish economy. The Harvard Review said, On January 1, 1990, the Polish post-communist government introduced one of the most far-reaching and radical economic reform programs ever undertaken in any country during this century. End quote. The government enacted forms to shift the nation away from a state-ran market. Auxiliary measures to stabilize the prices, reduce inflation, and encourage private businesses were enacted. Laws were enacted to force businesses up, get employment going, create jobs. Everything was done. Poland reached out to every nation they could to get foreign aid, to exchange the goods that Poland knew they had and that the world wanted. Restaurants were built, tourism sites were created, and Poland was quick to jump at the idea of joining the new systems. They wanted it to be in NATO as quick as possible, and they wanted it to be in the EU as well. All that Poland needed to do was get to a point where it was a strong democracy, and it would be accepted, and it would be accepted into both. That's why it took a few years up until 2003 to get into the EU, because they had to get those marks of being regarded well by every EU country, but once they were in, they were happy to be. Despite the quick and sharp contrast in the shape of the economy, Poland succeeded. In the years that followed, Poland gained more foreign investment, grew the GDP, diversified the economy, and burst into new industries. Poland is one of the countries leading in tech right now, and is a tech frontier for the world. It's in a unique area, it's got a different customer base, it's got a different market share. Poland has money to spend, and it continued to go that way all the way through the 2020s. And now in 2024, I'm going to acknowledge what happened last year. By 2023, Poland had continued its growth in most sectors, which helped it become one of the most relevant and successful European Eastern powers once again. Eastern European powers once again. Also in this year, Poland used its large buying power on thousands of tanks, hundreds of fighter jets, and many more arms of war. This is clearly a reaction to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Poland planned to double its military spending to become the third largest military in NATO behind only Turkey and the juggernaut that is the United States. Poland has housed nearly 2 million immigrants from Ukraine for their safety. And this has been a point of political debate between the liberal half of the government that wants to prioritize humanitarian aid and the conservative half that wants to uphold traditional ideals and put Poland first. There has been a lot of debate on whether Poland should uphold its Catholic nationalist ideas of old or accept the challenging changes of the time. But with all that, we are brought to the present. Poland is ranked as very highly developed on the Human Development Index, despite being in complete rubble less than 90 years ago. Poland has one of the largest and fastest growing economies in Europe, and that, by all, that, by all predictions, will be the continent's largest by 2030, likely to overtake even the United Kingdom in the GDP and exporting power by that year. Polish expats have affected every single area of the world we know today, from sports to music as well as science and art. Poland has truly suffered through one of the most harsh histories in the world, but nonetheless preserved through it to become the Polish nation we know today. Polish culture is one of a deep uniqueness. 
There is a huge connection with family, forged through the gritty history of the nation. My father tells me my Polish grandmother had endless love for his family, but showed it through work. The Poles are like that. They are gritty, hardworking people that teach their kids the value of a sweaty brow earned through hard work that matters. When you're working for your nation, your family, the Poles will do it every time. They believe that doing that is the way to become a great man or woman, great way to establish who you are, create connection, because the world is hard. The world has been harsh to the Poles, and they have embodied resistance and they have embodied resistance and grit throughout history, which is why I say the lesson or takeaway with this nation is always fight back. I don't need to explain much as to why I say this with Poland, but Poland has fought back. Its people have fought back. No matter the century, the time, who the oppressor was, the invader was, the rapist was, no matter who it was throughout Polish history, the only person to stand up for Poland has been the Poles, the Polish people. I can trace this back to the 1500s, the 1300s. I can trace this all the way through World War II where the most disgusting acts of World War II happened in Poland. But through all of it, no matter if it was the 123 years where Poland straight up didn't exist, the disjointed periods, the periods of land being lost, and even at its peak as a commonwealth, Poland always pushed through. In the present era, in the past era, in the past hundred years, and in the past thousand years, Poles have always been there to fight for themselves. No matter who the enemy was, no matter who was oppressing them, it didn't matter. The Poles always fight back, and I say you should do the same. There's going to be someone in your life, some oppressor, some abuser, someone that comes in to try and take things from you, be it your government or your husband, your relationships, your professor. There's going to be someone, some organization, something that tries to take you away from you. It's going to try and hurt your family. It's going to try and stop you from achieving your dreams. It's going to try and keep you in a content place in life where you're not growing. It's going to try and stop you from getting where you should be and where you want to be. I guarantee it. There's not a single person on this earth who doesn't experience that. We all do. And no one has experienced it like the Poles. There's a few, but no one in Europe has experienced it like the Polish people. That is a fact. And I say, be like them and always fight back. Whatever your oppressor is, whoever it is, whatever it looks like, fight back. It doesn't have to be with violence. It doesn't have to be with your fists. But fight back with your words. Fight back with your hard back work. Fight back with your hard work. Fight back with your pride. Do whatever you need to do to fight back against those and the world that is trying to push you down and not let you succeed. I hope with my soul and pray to whatever is above me that you never have to go through anything as dark as the 1900s were for the Poles and the Jewish Polish people. But whatever it is you go through, breakup, bad job, abuse, anything in between, you have to fight back because the only person that will ever stand up for you is you. The same way the only person at the end of the day who cared about the Poles was the Poles themselves, the only person who's going to look you in the mirror at night and have thoughts that actually affect you are you. So put yourself first, fight for yourself first, and do not ever give up the chance to fight back for your own life. Poland has done it for centuries, and you can do it in this lifetime. I promise you. So be like the Poles and always fight back. I got very amped up there because this one means a lot to me. Um, this country, it's where a lot of my family started their origins. It's how I still have the last name I do today. It was in the era of disjointment where there wasn't even a Poland to call home that my family started to get out of there. 
generations ago and were able to avoid the horrors that the friends and family of people my parents knew had to go through. So, you know, as this has gone throughout history, Poland has gone through a lot, but it is here today and look at it. It is soon to be one of the largest, most successful nations in Europe. And I couldn't be happier for it because after all this nation's been through, how could you not cheer for this nation, cheer for those who have stayed, cheer for those who have managed to survive? So if I got amped up there, it's just because I care. And this one means a lot to me. And this one's special. So, you know, I love all my Polucks. I love all my skis, my Belanskis, my Garlinskis, my Barakovskis, all of them. This one means a lot to me. I really hope you guys got something out of it. And I'm, <laughs> I'm just going to sign off here. So. That was emotionally charged. It was powerful. It was a lot for me, but I do hope you guys enjoyed. So with all that being said, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for giving me the chance to talk so much about this country I have such a deep care for, and I hope you guys enjoyed. So just thank you. And one more time, my name is Reese Garlinski. This is Young History, and that was Poland.